All right, all right, all right, all right. This is a first. I don't think I've ever done this before. Not only am I going lo- Oh, I just messed up. My- oh, I just messed up my hair. Damn it. <sighs> Dude. I mean... I'm really not a vain guy, but, you know, if you're, you're going to go be on, you know, the internet, you might as well make sure your hair looks kind of nice, kind of presentable in some way, shape, or form. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? You know what I mean? Um, so for today's episode of The Jeff Show, I thought we would tackle one of my favorite subjects that I can talk about for hours, forever. I could literally never stop talking about this this subject. Um, that's Return of the Living Dead, uh, which is different from Night of the Living Dead. Well, first, let me break down the history, okay? Real quick, real quick. For those who are or are not familiar, here's this is a book. This is called the, the Complete History of the Return of the Living Dead. I call it Return of the Living Dead, not The Return of the Living Dead. Or you could just call it Rotold. Rotold is a short way of saying Return of the Living Dead. Or you can call it Return, where you say Night, Night of the Living Dead, that sort of thing. In any case, so so what happens? Um, George Romero and nine other people comprising a thing, an, an, an entity known, known as Image 10 uh, go out and they make Night of the Living Dead, right? Um George Romero's co-writer, although I think he gets full writing credit, even though everybody kind of knows that George Romero really wrote Night of the Living Dead himself, uh, is this guy, John Russo, right? Uh, He's the writer element. And he also acts in the movie. He's one of the zombies that Ben takes out with a tire iron uh, early on in the film. He goes and, you know, Image 10 breaks up. Him... Rudy Ricci, 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 and Rush Striner, who plays Johnny, who is also the producer of Night of the Living Dead, they they branch off and they start doing their own stuff um, from George. George continues on, soldiers on, uh, you know, doing his thing. He partners, George partners up eventually with Richard Rubenstein. And I think under the guise of Laurel Entertainment, they release the renaissance of George Romero films that everybody, you know, loves and reveres on the flip side and Bill Heinzman, Bill Heinzman, John Russo, Rudy Ricci and Russ Striner. They, they strike out on their own and they, they put out a couple things. There's only one more image 10 movie after night of the living dead. And that is something I'm doing this all off the top of my dome right now. That is something called there is always vanilla. It's probably the least seen George Romero film out there written and directed by George Romero. I think maybe John Russo helps with that script. Uh, You know, safe to say, or sad to say, unfortunately to say that it did not do well. It did not. uh, uh, There's always vanilla did not work out. Um, Those guys all split up and then the Richard Rubenstein thing happens. Right. So um, John Russo, those guys will just say John Russo and, and team separate from George Romero. Uh, they do their own version of – they decide to sequelize Night of the Living Dead. Uh, see, because there's a split between – I don't know. I th- There might have been a court case. This I'm not sure about. There might have been a court case. There was some understanding, some sort of settlement or understanding between John Russo and Russ Striner and Rudy Ricci and George Romero uh, about, about – um, who can do what? So John, so George Romero, he can continue on and do Dawn of the Dead. So everything, I'm trying to find my Dawn of the Dead box, I don't know where to put it. He can do he could do of the dead. So if you look at all of Romero's films, he never uses living ever again. He it's just it's Dawn of the Dead, it's Day of the Dead, it's uh Land of the Dead, it's Diary of the Dead, it's Survival of the Dead. Meanwhile, the flip side, Russo. He gets to do his own thing. He he can continue on with the living dead. So he can do uh and, and he does. He does. There's a whole branch. It's kind of like, you know, I was talking with someone the other day about how in Italy there's like, you know, Italy loves to do third films or you know, continuations of films that have nothing to do with the franchise just to make money off the name. For instance, Troll Three is actually a, a movie about plants called Contamination 0.07. 
that got titled Troll 3, just to use the title. Probably the, 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 the most shocking version of, of that sort of appropriation. Uh, in Russo's case, it's no farthest thing from, from that in a way. He's, just, he's continuing. He's doing his own sequel to Return of the Living Dead. I mean, to Night of the Living Dead, calling it The Return of the Living Dead. And it starts off as, as a book, right? You have, a, you have the novelization uh, called Return of the Living Dead. That comes out in 1978, right around the time that Dawn of the Dead comes out. Now, you would imagine, why did those two things coincide together? Because here is George coming out with this big, splashing success, and Russo, in an effort to make, because those guys did not make any money on Night of the Living Dead, uh, in an effort to maybe capitalize on Dawn of the Dead's massive success, uh, in in or at least you know they might have heard gr- uh, grump if they if if the if Return of the Living Dead the novel had come out before Dawn of the Dead maybe that was because Russo had known that George was doing Dawn of the Dead. In any which case, Russo releases a book called Return of the Living Dead in 1978 with the intention of eventually turning it into a film. The rights get picked up; it gets optioned. Return of the Living Dead gets optioned to be turned into a film. The plot is terrible. I don't know much about it. I've never read it. I don't want to read it. But basically, it takes place 10 years after Night of the Living Dead. It involves a school bus full of football players dying and then coming back to life in that funerals. Now, you have to have the spiked club that you used to stick someone in the in the center of their head uh, to make sure that they stay dead. And that's that's the original Return of the Dead novel. That gets optioned. This guy, Tom Fox, super producer. No, he's not a super producer. As a matter of fact, he's not. Why did I say super producer? He's not a super producer. He's a businessman. Tom Fox is a businessman who, who, who wants to get into the movie-making business. So he buys the rights from Russo, the options, the, the rights to the movie. Um, and it goes through a succession of filmmakers, right? You have Toby Hooper is originally going to make this. And for a long time, as a matter of fact, there are even certain threads, uh, certain, certain uh, micro, micro pieces of story um, from Toby Hooper's uh, intended version that, final, that make it into the final film. Little details about India, the, 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 the dental farm in India. That's all Toby Hooper's idea. That got incorporated. So Toby Hooper was supposed to do it. He didn't end up doing it. He, he ended up doing Life Force or Invaders from Mars instead, which also has James Karen in it, funny enough. I think he was doing Life Force, and that's why, in any case, he dropped off the project. Um, you know, a bunch of stuff happens. Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, who's famous for writing Alien back when it was called Starbeast, not the Alien Alien, um, who, who basically came up with the whole idea of Alien. Dan O'Bannon. He's the true credit. And he got his start with John Carpenter. They made a movie called Dark Star in which Dan O'Bannon actually stars in Dark Star. It started off as a student film that then expanded into a feature um, and whatever. Yada, yada, yada. I'm going off, off course here. Dan O'Bannon signs on to direct his first film which is going to be Return of the Living Dead. Up until this point, He's merely a screenwriter, an actor. He's done special effects for Dark Star. So he gets involved. Um, he looks at the novel that John Russo has written and is like, I'm not. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He wants to. Uh, Dan O'Bannon comes from the school of I have to be the auteur. I have to have my hand in every. I has to be written and directed by me. It has to have my my stamp on every little thing. It needs to have Dan O'Bannon. So what he does. He, he does this crazy ballsy move. He throws out the, all those plot details I just talked about from a very, what would have been a very lackluster film, Return to Living Dead, the 1978 novel, and rewrites the script from, from the very beginning, uh, keeping the title The Return of the Living Dead, but just starting from, from scratch. Nothing from the original Return of the Living Dead remains. So Dan O'Bannon writes the script and in order to not, you know, there, there's some honor to Dan O'Bannon in the sense of I don't want to rip off what George Romero has done with Night of the Living Dead. So not only are we going to acknowledge Night of the Living Dead, but we're going to invert everything that George did in order to separate ourselves. So we're not aping his gig. So we're not riding those coattails. So in fact, by doing this, 
he basically takes this incredibly meta, early meta approach where he, and you know, meta, you know, meta is not like a contemporary concept. There are things that are, there are a lot of things that, that are meta. The Beatles were meta when the Beatles are doing um, the video for hello, goodbye. They put on the, the, the costumes that they would wear in 1963. They're like already self-referencing themselves. So, Meta has existed from from time to time in pop culture consciousness. This is another big example where like sort of like meta storytelling comes out of nowhere. And you have you have Dan O'Bannon writing what is essentially a sequ- rewriting a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, even though Night of the Living Dead now has its own official sequel, which is Dawn of the Dead. He writes his own sequel to, to Night of the Living Dead, calling it Return of the Living Dead referencing Night of the Living Dead, but it's a movie that's based on the real events, which to me, in my mind, and I guess this might be, I always, I think of it as a hot take. I don't really hear this too much. I, I take, as a matter of fact, I'll even take credit for it in the idea of really thinking of Return of the Living Dead 150% being a official, legitimate sequel to Night of the Living Dead. That just goes into completely different direction in return of living dead dawn of the dead is a movie too as well i guess all that's the movie universe meaning hey what's up pete we're talking about return of living dead here breaking things down so in that so if you think about it romero's films are actually in universe or or in movie universe for return of living dead if that makes sense. So Return of the Living Dead is the real world. And Night of the Living Dead is a movie within Return of the Living Dead. And that is what a what a nutty, awesome, wonderful concept. And, you know, the zombies move fast. The zombies only eat brains. He does all these things. Dan O'Bannon does all these things. Sort of the, the, the script is, first of all, the script is a script of genius. It's one of my favorite scripts ever. It really is. I love that story. It's so well done. Every scene builds into another scene. Nothing is there for show. There's no fat. Everything folds into another thing. And, you know, action escalates. It's just the perfect example. You know, he wrote a book about screenplays and, you know, about writing screenplays. And it's like, there's a good reason why he did, because the dude's done Alien and he did Return of the Living Dead, which are two incredible screenplays. Um, as I was saying, the action just keeps rising. Every scene is a reaction of the previous scene, and it just builds and builds and builds. And then he gets to a place where he just, spoilers, blows it all up. Because where do you go from there? It's brilliant. It's so brilliant. Um, so now, th- all of this has been set up for what I'm about to explain to you right now. So now, John Russo uh, Russ Striner and Rudy Ricci get a story by credit, despite the fact that they have not written a stitch of this story. They they get a, a, a that just as a placeholder because they have the title "Return of the Living Dead." So if you look at the credits, you'll see John Russo, Night of the Living Dead screenwriter, is actually in the credits for "Return of the Living Dead," um, despite not having written any of that story. However. Now, here's where things get really confusing, which brings us into our main uh, topic for discussion. John Russo is then hired by the studio or by somebody. I don't know who. They come back to John Russo to take Dan O'Bannon's script and then write the novelization of that script. So just to break that down and a little bit wider. So. Russo writes Return of the Living Dead in 1978. Dan O'Bannon rewrites Return of the Living Dead from scratch. John Russo then comes in and adapts that for a novelization. So he novelizes the script of his movie that resembles nothing like the original 1978 version. And it's nuts. And again, and I say this uh, truly... I guess this is kind of uh, an insult to John Russo. I don't want to insult John Russo. I met John Russo. It was an honor to meet him. Anybody connected to Night of Living Dead, I'll never meet George. You know, so it was cool to meet. To meet, um, and it's true, he is a kind of a grumpy guy. John Russo can be a little grumpy, 
little ornery, as this uh, blog article describes, uh, that we're going to look at. But uh, where was I going with all that? Yeah, you have him. He comes in and he writes what I consider to be – oh, right, because I said I was insulting him. I don't mean for this to be an insult because he's supposed to be the writer of Night of the Living Dead. But again, I don't know who knows how much he actually wrote. And a lot of it, you know, Night of the Living Dead is really based on I Am Legend by by Richard Matheson, which was also adapted into The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price in 1964. Um, so again, I think the Return of the Living Dead novelization is one of the best things that John Russo has ever written from the writer of Night of the Living Dead. The writer of Night of the Living Dead. This book is phenomenal. I found this. This is from 1985. Look, it says now a major film. They, this came out before the poster art was created. That's why you have this weird, this weird um, uh, photo on here. I believe and they added. This is probably a second. This is not the first pressing of the book. This is probably a second pressing of the book. Let's see. Actually, this is from Arrow Books. Look how the pages are so brown, dude. The pages are so brown. Okay, so it was first published in 1985, huh? It says, note to readers, this novel is based on the film of the same name and is markedly different from the earlier novel of the same title by John Russo, which was originally published by Hamlin Paperbacks. Isn't that crazy? Look at that. Now, I read this book, and I got to tell you, I loved it. I enjoyed it so much, except for one really stupid subplot. Um, So much gets flushed out in the novelization. Here's the thing. This is why you want novelizations and why novelizations are so special. Let's say that there's a movie that you really, truly love and you know you, you, uh, uh, you want to endlessly explore the movie and the movie's universe, and, but all you get is the movie. All you get is that 90 minutes. All you get is that two hours, and then it's done. Well, with novelizations, you get so much more because novelizations are usually based on the movie script, which contains details that are not in the film itself. And so what ends up happening is the world gets expanded. Details get added. That story that you can't get enough of, that movie that you compulsively see a hundred times. I've seen Return of the Living Dead a hundred times, over a hundred times. You just get so much more from the novelization. And that is definitely the case with Return of the Living Dead. Um, so I'm going to go to a blog in a second because I feel like they have more details than I do, but I'm going to try to remember as much as I can off my head. Here's where here are some of the major differences in Return of the Living Dead as opposed to the movie. So in the book, there is a whole subplot. This is the worst part of the book, actually. There are chapters devoted to some Russian military comrade guys who are basically responsible for the 245 trioxin gas. So that is actually, remember, this is written at, uh, during the height of the of the 80s, you know, paranoia from the Cold War, you know. Uh, movies like in 1983, you have, what is it? The, the day, what's that movie where uh, uh, we get hit by nukes? Uh, the day, not the day after tomorrow, obviously. It's, um, uh, oh my God, this is going to bother me. What's the name of the movie where, where we got, hold on, I can actually tell you right now. Um, it's the, it's the American answer to threats. Uh, you know, you're th- we're at the height of cold war paranoia here. I have it in my phone. I could tell you right now we're at the height of cold war paranoia. Um, and of course they add a whole subplot about here. It's called, ah, it's so annoying. The day after it's called the day after the day after from 1983, the day after has already come out. Threads has already, no, Threads will come out. Threads is the English response to the day after. So you, of course, you know, the, 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 the rage in, in, in literature and in pulp literature, of course, is going to ha- be the Russians, which is actually very contemporary. Now, the Russians are coming to sabotage us. The Russians, we're in the Cold War with the Russians. So there's a subplot with the, these two Russians. We're talking about something about how they release the gas. As a matter of fact, let's take a look here. All right, this is going to be a little weird because I only have one. Oh, I only look. You can see Pete's comment. Hey, Pete, that's you're seeing behind the veil right now. Here, there we go. That'll cover up some stuff. So, let's see if we could find uh, Russian. Yeah. So, 
here's what here's what happened. There's a subplot goes like this: the Soviets use a zombie outbreak against the United States. It, they, see, this guy thinks it's a neat idea that belongs in another movie or a novel. In this case, this fits into Russo's world. This Italian Catholic uh, really hates those godless commie B words. Uh, in any case, all right. There's two guys from from the Secret Service who are hanging out in Moscow, sipping vodka and chuckling evilly uh, about their countrymen uh, that they do whatever. Point is, uh, they are they they have kickstarted the the zombie outbreak in in this uh, in this version, not in not in the film, but in the um, in the book. And I think it doesn't work, man. I think it takes us out of the story. It's really stupid. It, it It's such a, it's so ham fisted. If you ask me, um, this Russian invasion into the world of return of living dead is placed where the introduction of Colonel Glover, uh, would be in the movie right after we see the yellow cadaver in Unita's freezer room, start twitching to life. Um, the Colonel doesn't show up until after Frank, makes his we have a little problem phone call to Bert in his office and just before the scene where legs uh, trash does not do her naked graveyard dance so people are 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 named differently in this in this uh thing you have so uh spider who's played by Miguel Nunez Jr his real his name is meat uh trash is known as legs um I think Su- suicide has a different name too I'm trying to remember what his name is I don't remember uh specifically um but what's cool about this is you have this whole subplot as to why why is freddie even at this job new job in the first place for you need a medical supply warehouse job why is he even there uh, russo makes return of the living dead the movie the novel <laughs> it's so funny return of the living dead the movie the novel his own as much as possible. That's so true. I 100% agree. And so I said, this is the best thing that Russo has ever written. Um, uh, And the majority of his personal context belongs to that of a devoted Italian Catholic. Yeah, you do see that. Uh, This isn't really a match made in heaven for O'Bannon's southern fried uh, nihilist sci-fi instincts. If the Cracker Jack plot and dialogue remain intact, and Russo is definitely a skilled writer. So what the reader is left with is a more straight-laced and serious version of the story. That's true. That was only meant to be half serious. For a devoted obsessive of O'Bannon's film, even little deviation screams loads about the mind of John A. Russo. And where uh, Russo deviates from O'Bannon is his Italian Catholic moralism. The novels take on the ill-fated romance of Freddie and Tina rather brilliantly dovetails with some unanswered and non-essential questions. That's key here. It's non-essential. We don't need to know this. But again, like I said, if you're starved for more, if you want to know more information than you could possibly handle about this series and, and want to know everything that there is, the novelization provides that. By the way, you, this is out of print. You can find it online. I got my copy for $3 like like eight years ago. I don't know what it goes for today. I'm sure there's a lot fewer copies uh, eight years later than there were eight years ago. I'd like to think that there are not. This is probably not that easy to come by. I think you can still get it online. I don't know how much it's worth. Um, something to look into. But why is Freddie at the Unita uh, Supply Warehouse? The, sorry. Why is Freddie at uh, Unita Medical? Uh, he's there to get a job because his friend Sunshine uh, OD'd. That's right. So before this even starts, he had, Ed, uh, uh, Freddie has a, has a roommate um, named Sunshine who ODs on heroin, and 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 Freddie wants to uh, straight straighten up. He wants to uh, go go the straight and narrow. And so, yeah, um, about why Freddie sold out and got a job. So it question it it answers questions about why Freddie sold out and got a job unlike his punk friends and why a goody goody like Tina is hanging with the lights of trash slash legs. And okay. So suicide retains his name in the, in the, in the book as well. The open, I haven't read this in years, by the way. So I'm just going from my memory. That's why I have this open. In fact, 
because I know I'm not going to remember. The opening pages uh, find Freddy gathering courage in the Unita bathroom for the rigor of a straight life. He and Tina found their punk pal Sunshine OD'd on the floor and were scared straight. O'Bannon has noted that the death iconography of punk culture was one of the reasons for including them in the story, and Russo recognizes the significance, except unlike O'Bannon, he's judgmental and casts the punk life in a more serious and realistic light. And here's an excerpt from the book. Uh, Too much more of the street scene, and he'd be dead. Up until a few weeks ago, he had been under the illusion that he was on a glide rather than a nosedive, cruising around, not giving an ish, spouting off the motto he had copped from an old black-and-white gangster flick. Live fast, die young, and make a good-looking corpse. But now he was scared ishless of dying young. His mind was all bent out. Funny that he's thinking that on the day that he dies. Uh, But now he was scared, ishless of dying young. His mind was all bent out of shape uh, from when he and his girlfriend, Tina, had found their pal Sunshine naked on his bathroom floor, all bloated and green and stinking of gangrene, the broken syringe and needle still stuck in his arm. O'Bannon's film obviously had affection for all the kids, even Suicide is lovable uh, is lovable when he tells a, a naked Leanna Quigley to st- start showing some effing respect for the dead. Uh, the gang in Russo's novel isn't any more criminal in attitude or behavior, only more obnoxious and aimless, in contrast with the redeemable Freddy and Tina. This new moral high ground with which the story is approached is alternate, alternately cornball and humorless, sucking dry the carefree sense of the punks uh, that the punks herald in their first scene of the film. Only when Russo is being uh, uh, derisive towards them does he attempt humor, uh, like noting that Suicide's car has the stink of a litter box. The lack of a punk soundtrack, something the novel can't do anything about, also makes Return of the Living Dead, the novel, less of a punk rock zombie story and more of a zombie story that happens to include punks. However, you could do uh, a high fidelity situation where you have, you know, them talking specifically about music. You know what I mean? Like that would work. You have them talking specifically about, Hey, and we just put the damned, uh, you know, you could say, um, friggin' scuzz took out his favorite damn taped and, and jammed it in the, in the, uh, tape deck of uh, suicide's car. I mean, you could do stuff like that. Insofar as Freddie and Tina, the novel's quintessential evangelical approach to the issue of teen juvenile delinquency is actually strangely compelling. Russo uh, eventually makes good on the ominous, ironic foreshadowing of Freddie's desire not to end up another live fast, die young casualty when he and Tina finally meet up at the morgue. But what do you have, Freddie? She blurted. I've never seen anybody look so awful. You look like, like she bit her lip, not daring to say what he looked like. Like sunshine, said Freddie, uh, completing her thought in a mournful, self-pitying whisper. Uh, concerning her own relationship to morality, Tina is now Tina Vitali, daughter of an Italian Catholic parents against whom this whole punk thing was her way of acting out. Tina had been raised a strict Roman Catholic in an Italian-American family, uh, periorical school, the whole bit, including... Uh, a great deal of pressure from the nuns when she was a senior in high school uh, to make a decision to enter the covenant. But then, as her parents would say, she had fallen in with the wrong crowd. What had really happened, in her own opinion, was that she had started to think. She had bought the paperback of Mark Twain's Letters from Earth. I mean, this is all stuff that John Russo added, and it's good. It's not bad. I, I like it. I think it's good. It adds so much to the to the. And I'm picturing. You know, Beverly Rudolph as Tina, even though she looks different in the novel. Um, uh, In any case, uh, she stopped reading and started studying and started running around. The intellectual quest that had started the trouble was abandoned. Oh, yeah, better connect this to power. Hold on one second. I'm going to lose power on my laptop. Um, Sorry. The intellectual quest that had started the trouble was abandoned and largely forgotten, trampled in a climate of passion and confrontation. Tina became a street brat, defying her parents' conservatism 
by a pursuit of its uh, diametric opposite. So, you know, Tina is doing her thing. She, Tina is a goody two, two shoes. Like she kind of is in, she's a little squeaky clean in the, in the, in the movie itself um, and is doing so to rebel against her parents. So everybody has more fleshed out backstory. I would love to know. I don't think we find out much about Scuzz. I want to know more about Scuzz. I want to know more about meat, AKA spider. I want to know trash's backstory, AKA legs um, for the purpose. Cause, cause that was what O'Bannon had written in his script. Uh, legs became trash at the very last moment. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like to read the, um, to, oh my God, that would be kind of fun. Maybe we'll do that. We'll go through the actual original script. Oh my God, do a scream. Oh, oh my God. It's got a great idea. A great idea. Okay. Not for, not for later, not for now. For the purposes of the film, Freddie and Tina don't need any more pathos in their relationship by the time Freddie is becoming a zombie and Tina doesn't want to leave him. For the purposes of the novel, the story takes off with a sense of freshness that a longtime fan of the film like myself can appreciate for plausibly fitting within the parameters of the characters O'Bannon created. Uh, Russo found his personal angle on the story, and for the most part it fits, except when... Uh, having to wince through a clumsy religious reference like this unwelcome addition to the classic weirdest thing you ever saw prologue between Frank and Freddie. So the beginning that the inciting incident that starts everything off is changed. It's not possible for the dead to come back to life, except maybe on judgment day, Freddie hedged suddenly making up his mind to go to church more often. Incidentally, Night of Living Dead is no longer name-dropped in the novel version of the scene, which is weird considering that this is the writer of Night of Living Dead. Also, Frank is now Frank Nello and pegged by Freddy as an Italian Archie Bunker. Just before Frank asks him if Tina is a nice, clean Italian girl, are they really? Uh, are there really that many pe- many persons of Italian heritage in Louisville, Kentucky? Well, I mean, I think that's a gross... I mean, you're th- of course there are Italian people in Kentucky, man, uh, especially in a place like Louisville, where which is like a city, you know. But I guess the writer of this blog is really when he thinks Italian, he's thinking New Jersey. And how can you have a, a New Jersey personality down in in Kentucky? Who knows? I don't know. Since Bannon's brilliant screenplay opens with Freddie and James Karen's Frank, uh, before gradually shifting to the action. Uh, the action to other characters once they're poisoned, Russo's novel unfortunately can't help faltering once the action picks up and the focus turns to Burt Wilson and Don Kalfa's uh, Ernie Kaltenbrenner, since most of what they have to do is move the plot forward when everyone else is panicking. At about the halfway point in the story, when the graveyard across the street from U- Unita sprouts a zombie garden and most of the surviving cast are holed up in the funeral parlor, Finishing uh, the novel, uh, uh, finishing the novel finally starts to feel like a chore. Russo doesn't seem to have any kind of emotional investment in the trio of in the trio Bert, Ernie, and Spider Meat, uh, which becomes the core at the very end after everybody dies or turns into a zombie. Yeah, you have this core of Bert, Ernie, and Spider, uh, and 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 because Tina's a Tina's a mess by that point. Tina takes on the this Barbara this Barbara sort of role archetype in that kind of way um she's just breaking down uh you know grieving over the death of freddie who's about to start chomping on brains or attempt to uh bert is impenetrable in the novel as clue gallagher is in the film uh but russo does give ernie one dramatic internal moment if awkwardly late in the game the others were fought so this is cool because you get more ernie man i love ernie don kalfa in this film I could endlessly, you know, there are films, there are films where I will just watch them for the performance, like Gangs of New York, I'm watching for Daniel Day-Lewis's Bill the Butcher, right? Like there are just certain performances that are so magnetic. Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant, Port Authority in New Orleans. In this case, Clue Gallagher, but mainly Don Kalfa and 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 friggin' James Karen as as Bert and 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 Ernie and Frank are magnetized like they are so magnetized to watching them they're so they because you know why they take it seriously even though it's a goof they take it so seriously and because they take it seriously they sell every single moment uh and so i'll take anything i can get about early and in this case um sorry just checking to see if we had 
Um, and in this case, here's a little bit of internalized, uh, an internalized moment from Ernie. The others were following him, depending on his advice, drawing sustenance from his fortitude and resourcefulness. Ernie, that's a perfect breakdown of Ernie. So John Russo does understand these characters. Um, and it wasn't because he had the gun. No, they sensed that he had seized command of the situation because he sensed it himself. He was radiating something new, self-confidence. All of a sudden, he, Ernie Kaltenbrenner, high school nobody, middle-aged bachelor, near virgin, uh, obsecu executus funeral director, had emerged. What does obsequious mean? Let's look that up. Obsequious means obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree. That's that's cool. Funeral director had emerged as some uh, somebody worthy of respect, maybe even admiration. So the every man who turns into a hero uh, when when you know greatness, the opportunity to be great is hoisted upon him. That's great and everything, but come on, Russo, are you telling me that there was nothing in the script that noting Ernie's ties to the Nazi party? Because that's the that's the subversive angle of Ernie is a Nazi in hiding from his last name to the music he listens to, to speaking German, to the pistol that he wields, uh, to pictures of Ava, whatever, uh, Ava Gardner, what's the name of the Hitler's wife? Was all on the wall. Um, yeah, or Ava Braun, sorry. Uh, nothing about his pictures of Ava Braun and, and Goebbels on the wall of the funeral parlor. This is kind of the thing I want to read in the original screenplay to find out. Ernie's Luger gets mentioned, uh, gets a mention, but that's the extent of his ties to the fatherland. See, I have the original screenplay. I have the screenplay from 1983, and it's making me think that maybe what I need to do is actually do a live reading of the screenplay. That would be friggin' excellent. That would be fun. I don't know. We'll see. Ridiculously, Russo decides that the two paramedics who show up to tell uh, Frank and Freddie that they've got no, no blood pressure, no pulse, were highly deserving of an elaborate backstory uh, that O'Bannon somehow neglected to include for the two characters who's literally no names in the who, who literally no names in the credits. So yeah, it's true. The two paramedics who are interviewed in the documentary More Brains, they don't, they're not mentioned. They're never met. I mean, they're never mentioned by name. They're just they're just two guys that are there to literally state, hey, no blood pressure, no pulse. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know? Um they literally it's true. They, they have no credits, and they only exist to deliver exposition. This is Russo asserting himself creatively where there's no reason to do so. This guy actually has a pretty good breakdown. Cinema machine. Uh, Don and Stan, the two paramedics, uh, sped to the scene of the poisoning call in their long white ambulance, lights flashing and siren rolling through a heavy downpour. Both, both men were in their 30s, both Vietnam vets. See, that is cool. But you see the two paramedics come in to think that they were both v Vietnam vets. They survived the horrors of Vietnam only to have their, their skulls cracked open with bricks and their brains consumed. Because that's a detail that is mentioned. One of the big uh, details that's mentioned, not big, but a, a detail that's mentioned is that the, uh, the, the dead use bricks. They use tools to crack open the skulls to, to get to the brains. Um, after trying to patch together soldiers who were ripped to shreds by landmines, gr grenades, and, and mortars, they might be expected to have a certain blasé attitude about the lesser forms of civilian tragedy. Both affected such an attitude, but neither really felt it, and neither would admit it to another. I mean, what a what a detailed thing for for two who are what are essentially uh, two extras, right? I don't know. Um, granted, a little extra characterization is necessary in a novel for uh, for otherwise unnamed characters with speaking roles, but there's also an, a another page and a half of background for the men formerly known as Paramedic One and Paramedic Two. Uh, it's just, it's just stupid in a stunningly silly new sequence. Stan Feldstein, the paramedic number one, uh, has a karate skirmish with zombies before he and Don get devoured as opposed to the quick work, the undead mob make of them before calling in dispatch for more paramedics. See, it, I think that's not a bad detail. That would be kind of fun. And I wish we could have seen that in the movie. Uh, like everything else in the novel, the classic line loses all its pith pithiness. What does pithiness mean? Pithiness means uh, concise and forceful expressiveness. 
Uh, the fat, muddy corpse with the greedy, piggish eyes raised the microphone to its list. Hello, dispatch center. The corpse rasp in its choking, injured-sounding tone. We're going to need backup at Colton Brenner's funeral home. We have a half a dozen badly injured people here. Please send another ambulance over as soon as possible. Over. See, that is still very malevolent and scary to think that a dead person is speaking that into dead person who has probably been dead for many, many years, is speaking that into a microphone to basically get delivery to the front door so that he can eat more brains. I mean, it shows a, a devious, nefarious uh, cleverness to these undead, which made them always far more terrifying to me than, say, uh, Romero's zombies. Spider slash meat, because again, he's known as meat. Spider uh, suffers uh, worse in Russo's expansion of the story's action-packed second half. Not only does he fail to gain any new depth under Russo's indifference, he becomes shallower under Russo's disdain for the punks, elected to provide uh, way more bad joke lines than the situations even call for, and without the aid of Miguel Nunez's charm. I'm not leaving Freddy, Tina sobbed. You got, uh, you got to be the dumbest chick in the world, said Meat. If you stay here with them, we're locking the door, said Bert. Think what they'll, that'll mean if, said Bert. Think that will what'll say. Think what that will mean if I can't leave him. We're supposed to be getting married, she whined miserably. Till death do us part, Meat scoffed. <laughs> Ugh, there's such constantly demeaning new lines for Meat Spider like this, which sucks considering how in the film Spider eventually emerges as the bravest of the kids. And that's true. He totally rises and becomes the super like bad mother effer who just sort of, you know, with a sledgehammer, uh, he's no longer a punk in the second half of the movie. He's like a survivor and it's really great. And it does, I don't know. Freddie groaned holding his stomach. So did Frank. Oh, it hurts. It hurts. They both rasped. I think they're getting hungry, said meat. And we had better get our ASS uh, in gear and dispose of them before they come to realize what they're hungry for. Cause it sure as ish ain't chitlins. Uh, yeah, it is kind of, yeah, that's kind of not cool. I get it. Uh, let's skip over that part. Um, the only addition to character development in this book that would have actually behooved, uh, the film is so, wait, the only addition to character development in this book that would have actually behooved the film is so appropriate. I have to wonder if it was a re resolution originally in the script that got dropped for lack of time. Where Ch oh, right. Where Chuck and Casey are stuck at the Unita building together, Chuck manages to finally talk his way into Casey's pants using what else? God and fear of death. So yeah, so Casey and Chuck um, do have sex. They do get together and it totally works in the book. I'm not going to read all this stuff, but you know, they, they, they make it together. Um, super. Uh, so I would have liked to see Chuck get a little, get a little in the movie instead of just being told by Casey that she never liked him, but to hold her tight. They're the only members of O'Bannon's masterfully juggled ensemble. That's the perfect way to describe it. They are mat These, the characters in that movie are masterfully juggled. Um, that 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 the writer here feels got shortchanged, and I would agree. Um, in what one critic called the Casino Royale of horror films, interesting. Um, the zombies deserve a mention, of course, although their differences in Russo's depiction are not so marked in the comparison to the human cast. The most famous of them all, the Tar Man, is not referred to as such, but as a chemical mummy, which is very macabre. I like the idea of a chemical mummy, but nothing should ever take away from the tar man being what he is, the mother effing tar man. That's who he is. He's the tar man, right? Um, Freaking, uh, it is a really fantastical term. He, the, the writer says it's a really fantastical term, but I still like that he's called, he should be known as, always known as the tar man and nothing more. Uh, he also has the wherewithal to moan for help inside the Unita basement, thus luring in Tina which terrified me when I was reading that. I was imagining everything that happened in the movie, except the one difference was you hear this weak sort of gurgly voice going, help, help. And it's like Tina with her good heart is like 
you know, going to check it out and it's the tar man trying to lure her in. How terrifying. That is that is terrifying to me. Uh, Russo lets the zombies behave just as they do in the film, completely counter to what he and Romero initially conceived. A couple of special effects moments hatched by O'Bannon but left out until the sequel used them uh, made the cut in literary form. So a, a moving severed hand, finger, falling inside and being thrown in a van uh, used by Bert and Meat Spider in their ab abortive escaped attempt. So much like in Return of the Living Dead Part 2, you see the hand, they do the hot potato with the hand and the hand gives the finger like this. Uh, that was originally in Return of the Living Dead, which I did not know. That was originally in the Return of the Living Dead script. How about that? Um, a zombie blown in half by a shotgun. Uh, still crawling after the cops, which you also see, which is done really well in Return of the Living Dead too. The one big difference, all right, I think I know what he's going to say here. The one big difference from any zombie scene in the film concerns the other most famous principal corpse, the half lady, who explains to Dom Coffa that she and her fellow zombies uh, uh, crave brains to drive away the pain of being dead. Russo modifies her into Helen and Morton Dowden. Right, so at the very beginning of the movie, you see... You see uh, Ernie working on uh, a guy and, and basically setting up the, the Chekhov's gun that is Rigamoris. He's explaining Rigamoris because later Rigamoris is going to happen to Freddy, you know? And here, uh, that gets done away with. And they do this weird thing that actually sort of um, doesn't work with the, with, the, with the mythology of trioxin gas because the corpses inside come back to life despite not being exposed to acid rain, which is really weird. Doesn't really work. It's one of the biggest weird parts of the book. Let's see what the writer here says. Russo modifies the half corpse into Helen and Morton Dowden, a middle-aged couple who got cut in half by a car crash and replaced the nameless fat guy with a blue stomach. Right. And replaced the nameless fat guy with a blue stomach who's lying on Ernie's mortician table when Bert brings over the rabid weasel. So in the movie, like you said, like he's saying, the, the guy with the, the blue stomach who's lying there and getting involved, um, and, and they knock on the door, they come in with the with the rabid weasel story. At that at the point in the story where Brian Peck's scuzz becomes the last punk to get punctured by a zombie's jaws, uh, the mouthful of supporting actor now belongs, sorry, the mouthful of supporting actor now belongs to Helen Dowden. So Helen Dowden takes out scuzz. Uh, an alternate half lady to the anonymous topless zombet in the film. Russo staying in part, staying par for the course with the new Catholic spin on the saga of return offers an aside to Helen. Bert Wilson piped up nervously uh, coming up behind me, but no closer. Well, Ernie, I don't understand what you want with them. I mean, what are we doing? Let's get it over with. Put them in the incinerator. You're going to burn us. Helen Rasp. But she didn't sound the least bit scared. She even smiled in, 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 enigmatically, enig, like enigma, enigmatically. Doesn't that frighten you, Ernie asked? No, nothing can kill us. We just take different forms, said Helen. There is eternal life after all, she chuckled hideously. Chuckling hideously spoils the pathos of the scene in the film. And at this point in the book, I wasn't nearly as miffed by yet another Christian reference as the simple fact that there's no way that the trioxin contaminated rain from, from the outdoors could have possibly found its way onto any of the corpses indoors. Yeah, this is a huge error in the novel, probably the single biggest error, more so than the Russian subplot, honestly. Uh, the Dowdens are established much earlier in the book when Ernie uh, makes his first appearance. So one has to assume that Russo was either too far along in his manuscript to realize the mistake or that he didn't care if Dan O'Bannon's uh, cause and effect zombie science prevented him from racking up more uh, territory character details. I'm surprised he didn't invent a past life for the tar man. Sorry, chemical mummy. I have invented a past life for the tar man. Uh, that is actually, man, I want to turn it into a comic. I have a whole thing. I talked about this briefly before you can catch it in another episode. Uh, the final outright aberration from O'Bannon's script is the book ending device, 
which is highly unnecessary since O'Bannon already gave the story bookends in the film of the long-suffering Colonel Glover uh, duty to be on call at all hours of the day in case the lost consignment of Easter eggs ever resurfaces. On top of this, Russo adds a hearty dollop of Cold War conspiracy and gives the Colonel a foil behind the Iron Curtain, one Raymond Ashton, defector from the CIA to the KGB, and the traitor responsible for the trioxin barrels being misplaced on their way back to Darrow Chemical. So the Soviets uh, use a zombie outbreak against the United States, uh, and, and, it, and the writer says it's a neat idea that belongs in another movie, or a novel in this case. I agree, man. Uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. One of the brilliances of Return of the Living Dead is how... Re- uh, how relegating the action to a few low-key relatable locations, a warehouse, a basement, a cemetery, and reusing those locations at different points throughout the story, the tale has the feeling of being grounded in reality, despite all the living dead running around. What could disrupt that feeling of reality, or what could disrupt the feeling of reality is the mental image of Boris and Natasha uh, minding uh, the B-I-T-C-H of a third step as they tiptoe into Unita's uh, basement past uh, the Nixon Agnew poster, 68 poster, and making sure the trioxin barrels were still good and rusty for the inevitable day when someone like James Karen was going to tell a new employee the true story behind Night of Living Dead. For heaven's sake, why not just put on some gas masks, open the seal, and, and get out of there? Um, yeah, it just doesn't work, man. Uh, this Russo invasion into the world of Return of the Living Dead is placed... Right, he already said that, and we already talked about this. Okay, because I had got, I had jumped around. Um, uh, this is written by. This is written by somebody in England. Another thing I would I would say we're gonna have to wrap it up here because I'm about to run out of time on my my stream, my my stream spot account, not stream spot. What's this called? Streamyard account. Um. If you like this stuff, please like this video. Please leave a comment. Please subscribe, yada, 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 that whole deal. Um, what is interesting, uh, what is what else is interesting is that they don't just eat brains. Brains are not the center of, of the situation either. They eat everything. They eat flesh. They eat brain. They eat, they eat the whole kit and caboodle. I found the zombies in this book to be terrifying. Like I said, the idea of, a, of, of Tar Man going, help help like just absolutely uh sent a chill up my spine despite reading this midday on a park bench uh in the middle of summer i was terrified to read this book it terrified me when i was reading it um because i have kinder trauma from when i first saw return of living dead that's why this will be always be the ultimate for me uh tar man is my ultimate boogeyman truly um I like it, man. I like this book so much. I wish we had novelizations of Return of the Living Dead Part 2 and Part 3. I would read them all. Um, I hope to someday adapt my Tarman story into a comic or something thereof. I don't think I'd ever get to make a fan film, but uh, that's how much I care about it. I care about this series so much that I had to write some fan fiction. Um, I think what we're going to do in the future, I think I'm going to bust out the script that I have, and we're going to do a, a script reading. Maybe I'll get a couple of people in here. And we'll we'll do it for the channel. I think that would be so much fun uh, to do something like this. And I'll see if I can find a few volunteers. Um, with that said, I don't know what else to say. Uh, I gotta go. Uh, more. We got more stuff coming this week. Check it out. Yada yada yada. Return of Living Dead. It's great. I have to re- I revisit it all the time. I've seen it a million times. All right, I think that's the end. Uh, thank you for watching, and uh, we'll see you again. Hopefully, maybe tomorrow with another video because that's just what I do. I make videos every day.